This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. Nearly 70% of all reported sexual assaults, including assaults on adults, occur to children aged 17 and under. About 90% of children who are victims of abuse know their abuser. Only 10% of sexually abused children are abused by a stranger. On April 8, 2009, an 8-year-old girl was walking home from school in Woodstock, Ontario, when she disappeared without a trace. After security cameras showed a mysterious woman walking with her down the street, her missing person status was upgraded to abduction, prompting criticisms that there wasn't an Amber Alert issued initially. Her body was discovered three months later, and a man and a woman were charged in her murder. This is the story of Tori Stafford. Victoria Elizabeth Marie Stafford, who went by Tory, was born on July 15, 2000, in Woodstock, Ontario, Canada, to Tara McDonald and Rodney Stafford. Her brother Darren was about two years older than her. She was described as a ball of endless energy, her mother stating, quote, She loved soccer, she loved dance, she loved church. She loved anything where she was able to wear out the unbelievable amounts of energy that she had, end quote. Tori was just your average eight-year-old child. She loved spending time with family and friends and playing outdoors, often bringing home frogs or worms, but also a, quote, drama queen who loved lip gloss, end quote. And like most children at the time, she loved Hannah Montana, Bratz dolls, Disney princesses, and high school musical, even putting some posters up in her new bedroom. Her parents had been separated, and her mother had moved into a new home just one week prior to her abduction. Her father was in the process of trying to spend more time with his children and had been somewhat absent in their lives, according to reports. I tried to find who was living in the home at the time, but it's a little unclear and slightly varies depending on which article you read. Her mother, Tara, did have a boyfriend named James Gorris, and her mother, Tori's grandmother, Linda Winters, had taken the children to school that morning, but it is unclear if the grandmother or the boyfriend lived in the home. I thought I read that the grandmother lived next door or on the same street, something like that, but I couldn't find where I had read that, and so unfortunately I cannot confirm that part. It is confirmed that Tori's mother was addicted to Oxycontin at the time, 
and was unemployed. So likely her boyfriend was living there as well, or at least was spending the majority of his time there, um, as he was also addicted at the time and was connected to drug dealers in the area. But I'll talk a bit more about that later. The family lived in Woodstock, Ontario, Canada, which is located in the southwestern part of the province, roughly 130 kilometers or 80 miles from the capital city of Toronto. This section of the province is bordered by New York State to its east, Michigan to its west, and Lake Erie, Ohio, and Pennsylvania to its south. Woodstock itself is a smaller-sized city with a population of 40,902 as of 2016 and is known as the dairy capital of Canada as well as the, quote, friendly city. On the morning of April 8, 2009, Tori's grandmother walked the children to school at Oliver Stevens Public School, as she normally did. Eight-year-old Tori had borrowed butterfly earrings from her mother to wear that day and left them in the classroom at the end of the school day, so she asked to go back in to get them. Her brother Darren was outside and they were supposed to walk the short three-block walk home together, but Darren couldn't find her and thought she must have left to go home without him. So he walked home, dropping off some other neighborhood children on his way, according to reports. They had only just moved into this house the week prior, as I mentioned before, so the walk home was new, and this was apparently the first time the children made the walk without their grandmother. Again, I'm not sure if this was also a new school, or if they attended the same school prior and had lived nearby before this move. I assume so, but I couldn't find that information. But while that would make it a new walk to the new house, there would still have been some more comfort and familiarity that made Tori feel safe enough to walk home alone that day. At first, it was assumed Tori had gotten lost after her brother Darren returned home and it was discovered that Tori hadn't returned. Her mother admitted later in court that she was high on Oxycontin and didn't call the police right away because she didn't want them knowing she was high and that she thought Tori was just lost and it would have all been for nothing. Her brother took his bicycle out to look for Tori, but couldn't find her. Tori's grandmother eventually was notified of Tori's disappearance and went out looking for her and was the one to finally notify the police at 6.04 p.m. that night. I'm not sure exactly when the grandmother was notified, but reports say it was close to the 6 p.m. police report, as by that time, Tori had been missing for over two hours. Her mother did call some of her friends to see if Tori was there, but did not call police or physically go out looking for her daughter. An Amber Alert, which is the nationwide alert sent out when a child is abducted, was not initially issued, as there was no evidence that an abduction had occurred, and a ground search ensued. This was later heavily criticized. Security footage was then discovered from a nearby high school that showed Tori walking with an unidentified woman. At first, some speculation fell on Tori's mother, Tara, as she had known drug connections, had dark hair similar to the woman in the video footage, 
and had requested her mother not to pick up the children that day for the first time. She later stated she had grown distrustful of her mother for some reason and didn't want her walking the children anymore. Tara's own mother pointed blame at her daughter and vice versa with Tara pointing the finger at Linda. Because of the suspicions surrounding Tara, she was interviewed a total of five times and given a polygraph test that she later walked out of out of frustration. She stated, quote, While everybody sits and points the finger at me, they're not heading in the right direction. Pointing a finger at me is the furthest fucking place they're going to find anything. So, like, that's what I call wasting time. End quote. While speculations flew and theories swarmed in the media frenzy, police did not give up on their investigation or singularly focus on her mother, Tara, trying to get the pieces to fit, which sadly can happen sometimes when cases have little to go on. They tend to focus on one suspect and try to make the case fit that one suspect. In this case, the ground search continued for five days, and her disappearance was eventually labeled an abduction due to the found video footage of the woman walking her along the street. Her case was then featured on the April 25, 2009 episode of America's Most Wanted. In a surprising turn of events, on May 20, 2009, the police made an arrest and charged a 28-year-old man named Michael Rafferty with first-degree murder and an 18-year-old woman named Terry Lynn McClintock with accessory to a murder, and the two were publicly accused in the now-suspected abduction and murder of Tori Stafford. The tips had flooded in regarding the woman in the video footage, and Terry Lynn was identified and brought in for questioning on April 12, 2009 which was also when the ground search was called off and the school was allowed to reopen. For over a month, Terry Lynn denied any involvement until finally she caved and admitted she knew what had happened to Tori Stafford. Combined with surveillance footage from various businesses and Terry Lynn's own account, a terribly disturbing series of events began to unfold. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me in my efforts, I have now started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships every month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of May 2021 is Women's College Hospital. Located in Toronto, WCH is a leader in health for women, health equity, 
and health system solutions. Quote, we advocate for health equity because we know that a healthy society requires a level playing field where everyone has access to timely, high-quality, efficient, and compassionate care. End quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please, don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. Terry Lynn told police that she and her boyfriend, Michael Rafferty, were looking for a young girl that was more easily controlled, that he wanted to abduct someone, and that he enlisted Terry Lynn's help. That although she had met Tori's mother previously, once while Tara came to buy Oxycontin from Terry Lynn's mother, Carol, and once when she came back to discuss breeding their dogs, she did not know who Tori was that day and that she was just walking alone and was a prime target. They sat in the parking lot of a retirement home across the street from the school, and that originally she was going to lie and say to Michael that she couldn't find a child, but that he was watching her, and so she approached Tori, offering her to come see her dog, a Shih Tzu, which Tori also had at home. At the car, she pushed Tori into the back seat, and then they quickly drove off, covering Tori, who was crouched on the floor, with Michael's jacket. They made a few stops as they fled Woodstock, first to the home of a woman named Barbara Armstrong to purchase Percocets, before heading to a Home Depot hardware store, where Michael took out money at an ATM, and then Terry Lynn went inside to buy a hammer and garbage bags. Michael was caught on the ATM security camera at around 5 p.m. They then drove to a rural and secluded area in Mount Forest, Ontario, which was about 132 kilometers or 82 miles from Woodstock. It was at this location that Terry Lynn says she took Tori to the washroom before bringing her back to Michael, who was waiting at the car. She then testified, quote, He picked her back up. She still had a hold of my hand. She didn't want to let go. She asked me to stay with her, so I got in the front seat, and I tried to hold on to her hand. But I couldn't stay because I knew what was about to happen. I couldn't be there for that, end quote. She then says that Michael violently raped Tori in the back seat of the car, before throwing her out onto the ground. She then claims the screams from poor Tori caused her to have a, quote, flashback of her own traumatic childhood, end quote. And she testified, quote, I went back to the vehicle and I savagely murdered that little girl, end quote. In her account, she said that she went up to Tori and kicked her, before placing a plastic bag over her head and hitting her with the newly purchased hammer. She said that they then gathered Tori's belongings, including the butterfly earrings, and placed them and her body 
into the garbage bags before leaving her body under a tree covered in rocks. I know these cases are the hardest to hear and talk about. It's unthinkable that someone could harm a child. But especially to sexually assault an innocent child, to take away their childhood in that moment and forever change them, it's unbearable to think about and physically makes me sick. This is unfortunately too common of an occurrence. And even I know someone that this has happened to, and likely you do too. In fact, about one in 10 children, one in four girls, and one in six boys will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. And that's just what is reported. It is estimated that 60% of child abuse victims never tell anyone. These statistics are horrendous and is just another reason why we need to continue to tell these stories and bring to light the violence that women of every age experience daily. We all know a woman who has been affected by sexual violence at some point in their life, whether we knew they were or not, and that is just a fact. Her autopsy later revealed she had been severely beaten with at least four blows to her head by the hammer, along with 16 broken ribs and a lacerated liver. Unfortunately, her body was so badly decomposed that it was inconclusive if she had been sexually assaulted, but it was concluded she had been due to Terry Lynn's testimony and other evidence found on Michael's computer. I'd just like to say, as I previously touched on this in my most recent episode, the story of Kirsty Bentley, women can be accomplices and are often used by sex traffickers to lure young girls because they feel safer around a woman. Tori pleaded with Terry Lynn not to leave her because she thought she would protect her from Michael, when, in actuality, she was the one who murdered Tori so viciously. Terry Lynn eventually led police to Tori's remains, which did take some time to find. During this time, I feel like she was playing a part of a victim and that she was pretending to be so selfless in trying to bring Tori's remains home to her family. Her lawyer stated, quote, she wants Tori's family to know she is trying hard to find her body, end quote. This really made me sick that she somehow wanted credit, but as you'll find out, she is quite the manipulator. Michael Rafferty's defense in trial was that he had no clue what was happening when Terry Lynn brought Tori to the car that day that Terry Lynn claimed to have taken her because of a drug debt and said that he could do, quote, something sexual to her, end quote, but that he declined and simply drove them to the secluded area and then walked away because Terry Lynn asked him to, stating Tori was afraid of him. He claims that's when Terry Lynn murdered Tori all by herself and that while he had no part he did help clean up and cover up the crime. 
Thankfully, the jury did not buy his defense, and on May 11, 2012, he was found guilty on all charges of kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder, and was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. He later appealed his verdict, but that was dismissed. The back-and-forth appeal process was hard on the family, though. In an interview, Tori's father stated, quote, Since Rafferty's trial, every time he comes back to court, I get more and more enraged. We are all forced to relive the horrific events from that day. Now that I am working 40 hours a week, paying into the system, I'm finding it a little bit harder to do so, knowing that I am keeping this idiot alive and helping him get through his schooling and whatever, end quote. A publication ban was initially placed on the details of the case, but after it was lifted on December 9, 2010, it was discovered that Terry Lynn McClintock had pled guilty to first-degree murder and was also sentenced to life in prison. In 2018, Terry Lynn again made headlines when she was transferred to Okimao Ochi Healing Lodge in Saskatchewan, Canada, which, while run by Correctional Service of Canada, is a medium minimum security prison that is unfenced but monitored 24 hours per day. It is meant for Indigenous persons and focuses on healing and rehabilitation and is specific to Indigenous culture. There was much controversy as it was unproven if Terry Lynn was in fact Indigenous at all, and even her own family member disputed her claims. Due to public outcry, she was quickly returned to the maximum security federal prison in November of that same year. I hope for her family's sake that they stay in prison and stop receiving any special attention. It's bad enough that simple objects like garbage bags and hammers or a Honda Civic driving by, which was Michael Rafferty's vehicle, can send them into a panic attack. But they want their daughter's death to not be in vain and her story to highlight child abduction and help other children not endure the same fate. Her father stating, quote, I want her name to travel as long as I'm alive, and as long as I'm alive, I'm going to put it out there. She should never be forgotten. She should never be tucked away. Canadians need to know. There are still people naive about this kind of situation, that it will never happen to them, end quote. Her mother has found peace in becoming a birthing doula and says, quote, Birth is amazing. It's incredible. And I think it will help a lot. Being there and seeing new life coming into the world will give me purpose. End quote. She also credits her son to keeping her going, who is now running his own online company and keeps his sister's memory close to his heart, stating, quote, I'm doing this for us, Victoria. Everything I do, I do for the both of us. End quote. The loss of a child is the most heartbreaking, unimaginable event for any parent to endure. But to lose a child in such a tragic, senseless, and horrific manner, I can't fathom it. 
Tori Stafford should never have been in that situation. And her short life must live on as a cautionary story so that we can prevent any other family from living through such terror. Thank you for listening to the story of Tori Stafford. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.